0: Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American, Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payout for you and charity. Take it away, AZ.
1: And take it away, I will welcome everybody to Tennis Channel Podcast Network's Kickserveradio.com. I'm Andy Zodin. Our team consists of seven-time Grand Slam champion, former world number one, Mats Wielander, Two-time Texas Longhorn All-American. Had a pretty respectable pro career himself. That would be Johnny Levine. And, boys, we come off of Wimbledon with, they used to say, chalk flew when McEnroe would talk about line calls. But as chalk would have it, the two number ones in the world would cover the spread, if you will, and win the tournament. Novak Djokovic, Ashley Barty proving their worth as world number ones. Mats, there is talk now. Well, Goran Ivanisevic is saying that if Novak Djokovic wins the U.S. Open, it is case closed. He is the greatest of all time. There's no more talking about it. He wins the calendar slam, becomes the first guy since Laver in 69 to do it. He breaks the, the current now tie. With Rafa and Roger at 20 majors, he would then win 21. If Novak Djokovic wins, the U.S. Open is, as Goran Ivanisovic says, is it case closed? This guy's the best of all time.
2: Well, Andy and Johnny, nice to be with you uh, again. I would say that it opens up the discussion of what does the greatest of all time mean. Because suddenly we're going to go back to Rod Laver and we're going to say, well, he won the Grand Slam, calendar Grand Slam in 62 and 69. Bjorn Borg only played until he was 24 years old. So, yeah, on paper, he'd be the greatest. But I think we're going to start judging players uh, towards uh, popularity. And uh, Djokovic, if he wins 25, he'll most probably be regarded as the greatest of all time. But I think the definition of greatest is maybe not in numbers. But I agree with Goran. If he wins the Open, he wins a calendar slam. Uh, In these modern days, that's very hard to do. At the same time he's playing exactly the same game uh, in Roland Garros as he does at Wimbledon, as he will at the U.S. Open. So uh, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, for us, tennis tennis players, yes, he'd be the greatest of all time. But in people's eyes, I think that it's uh, he's uh, a little bit away from being considered the most influential, inspirational tennis player of all time. And that, in the end, is what it's going to come down to, I think.
1: Johnny, the fact of the matter is this. Not only... Would Novak be the career leader in major championships with 21? Not only would he be the first since Laver to win a calendar slam in 1969, but he would also have substantial head-to-head margins of victory over both Federer and Nadal lifetime. Wouldn't that criteria be enough to uh, influence the naysayers into having to throw their hands in the air and go, I don't know where we have a leg to stand on, to argue against this guy being the best of all time. Yes,
3: absolutely. In my book, Andy, that you summed it up very well. Um, We're we're in a historic time in tennis where, in my opinion, the deciding factor has to be number of slams. I I get where Matt's coming from, two grand slams by Rod Laver, but I just feel you cannot discount the depth and the amount of players that are playing in today's game. And with the three best players in the game today, and in my opinion, the three best of all time, because of having 20 majors for each of them, I I just believe that Novak Djokovic might not be the most popular, might not have the personality, but you just cannot take away what's on paper with the results. And when he does pass them, he will have the best head-to-head records against them, and the most slams, which which I do believe he will get. And therefore, I just don't think you can deny him from being the best of all time, whether he wins the actual four in one year or not. That's my opinion.
1: I want to circle back to Novak because there's so much to get to. There's so much to unpack. But I want to kind of move around a little bit to different things that sort of crossed my mind while watching the championships. And the first of which, Matts was that I sort of found myself in the unusual position of, of rooting for Andy Murray. I sort of found myself going, wow, this is really cool that off of this hip surgery that he is moving as well as he is, that he's defending the court. And I thought to myself, I'm wondering if I'm defending him just simply because of maybe the way that you had eviscerated him after the French Open last year. But no, there was more to it than that. And I felt like he really did put on a good show for the British. What were your thoughts on what you saw from him in the singles winning around and playing
2: well? Well, these are actually Andy's thoughts because I interviewed him after I think his second round. And, uh, and he said that I said, I asked him, how is the motivation? Like, because you got to have motivation. So I'm good with going to play challengers. I'm good with taking any wild card anywhere. And then he said, and I know you don't necessarily agree with that. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't, unless you're ready to play. And he wasn't ready to play against Denis Shapovalov, And he actually came out in the press and he said that let's not glorify my situation here. Let's just look at the reality. I am not even close to Denis Shapovalov, which means I'm really far away from Novak and uh, the best players in the world. And, uh, and he sort of put it in perspective. So again, Um, And he was laughing when he said that. I know you don't agree with me, Matt. So I I think that um, Andy and Roger have a situation that we all entered into at some point. They don't know where the switch is to turn it on, the intensity, the inspiration, the fun factor. They don't have it. Uh, Novak, on the other hand, has it. I don't know how he does it. But I think going back to that, I think there will be a hesitancy amongst tennis fans to single out Novak being the greatest of all time, rather than saying this era with Roger and Rafa and Novak, Roger, Rafa, Novak, that sounds too good to separate it into just Novak. And I feel like we're gonna, it's gonna be that same Bjorn Borg or Rod Laver, both 11 slams, Bjorn quit at 24, Laver two calendar slams, who's the greatest? Roy Emerson at 12, some of it in the, in, in the non-open era. So I don't think that Novak, I think he has to get to poof, 24, 25 to actually separate himself where people actually, you know, forget about Roger and Rafa and say, well, Novak Djokovic was the greatest. I think we were going to be talking about the era. And he said it in the interview, remember, that Roger and Rafa were the ones that took his game to the next level. And the interesting part is Roger had 16 majors in 2012. Novak, I believe, had one or two. That is unbelievable that somebody can have that determination to maybe not pass Roger, but to keep winning and winning. When I talk to him, he will never go beyond today. Like I'm talking calendar slam, 21 slams, whatever. And he's like, well, i got to beat the guy tomorrow. I'm like, come on, man, you can't beat. So, yeah, Novak is on a different journey that I don't think even Roger or Rafa has ever been on.
1: Johnny, I'm going to give you first shot to talk about Matteo Berrettini because he is the guy that you sort of helped the world discover. I mean, and of course I say that somewhat jokingly, but somewhat not because you were running the Challenger Tournament in Phoenix that he won in 2019, that to some extent he used as a springboard because he was number 57 in the world coming into that challenger, beats Mikhail Kakushkin in that final, uh, down a match point, and it really propelled him to great heights as he would finish 2019 at number eight in the world and qualify for London. How excited were you to see not just Berrettini, other players from that draw have done well, but particularly Berrettini to go from the Phoenix country club playing and winning a tournament that you put on to watching that kid play a Wimbledon final just two years later.
3: Yeah, it's uh it's quite a feat. And Matteo Bertini, um, I was getting texted all sorts of pictures from the finals where he took pictures with some of the sponsors and friends after the match. And they were so excited for him to be in that Wimbledon final, as was I, I do remember being at the 2019 U S open, which was probably about six months after he won our tournament. And and I did run into him and said, said hello to him. And he says, you know, it all started at the Arizona tennis classic. He actually said that, which is pretty cool. And I think people have recognized that that kind of launched him because he won, you know, some other tournaments after that, but it was just, you know, super exciting to see him play so well, you know, winning Queens, And then coming into the Wimbledon final, and you got to give the guy a lot of credit. I mean, he came out a little nervous and somehow he ended up winning that first set against Novak. Um, And Novak came came through, obviously, in the end. But what an amazing effort for Matteo Berrettini. And um, I'm not sure where he's ended up in the rankings, but he's got to be looking at top five now. it's, It's quite a thing.
1: What's the upside for Beratani Mats? What, is is this kid a potential slam winner? Do you group him in with with team and with pass? Is he right there with that group of players as the next generation, as likely to win not just one but potentially more than one major championship in his career?
2: I think he is, yeah. And and uh, so obviously, I was there for Eurosport, and we were live uh, after the ceremony was uh, done, and we actually got Matteo's brother Jacopo to come up. And talk to us live. And he was about at an 80% uh, physical level. Because remember he had that big wrap on his left thigh. And in the semis against Hubert Hurkacz, he had a situation where he uh, hyperextended his knee. And he hurt his thigh. And he said he was about at 80%. So to go in and play that match at, at a physical level of 80% is incredible. He wasn't really close to winning. But he emotionally, was close to um, to winning, I think, because he has an incredible outside self-belief that will take him to winning a slam, I'm sure. He's managed to hide his weakness, which is the two-handed backhand. He's hiding it by slicing the backhand, hitting a few drop shots, coming in, hitting the old-fashioned approach shots, and then looking for the forehand. So I like what Berrettini is doing. He's very set in the way... He needs to win points and construct points, and yes, he will win majors. I just can't believe that grass is where he had his best result because of that forehand with all that topspin. But he can bring the ball down from low and still shoot through the court because, I mean, he's an absolute monster physically. Let's
1: go to break because there's so much more to get to with this Wimbledon. we got to talk about Sebastian Corda. we got lots of people to discuss. Serena Williams, Coco Goff, Ashley Barty. Karolina Pliskova, lots to get to on the Wimbledon edition, the post-Wimbledon edition of Tennis Channel Podcast Network's KickServeRadio.com. I'm Andy Zoden. We feature the great Mats Vlander and Johnny Levine, and we'll be back with more on Wimby right after this. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And, Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There's so many new communication platforms, and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media, but why Squad Pod?
4: Squad Pod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden, That's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the tuckus and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players.
1: So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties. And everything in between is something that really can be protected by SquadPod.
4: Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with SquadPod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team.
1: Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. Welcome back everybody, KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Matt's VLander, Johnny Levine, I'm Andy Zoden. and we're talking Wimbledon. And uh, Matts, I do want to talk a little bit more about Novak and his relationship with Borny Benicevic, but before we get to that, we talked on live radio when we spoke during the championships about whether or not we can finally answer the question of who is the future of American tennis. I suggested we might have to now consider that to be Sebastian Corda around a round of 16 appearance at Wimbledon, a tough loss uh, at the hands of Karn Khachanov, a 10-8 fifth set with 13 breaks of serve and an unprecedented amount of breaks of serve. But the fact of the matter is the way this young man is conducting himself on a tennis court just smacks of pure, unadulterated professionalism.
2: Yeah, no, he Sebastian Korda is absolutely great. I mean, he the upside is is it's perfect, clean ball striking, um, good enough serve to get a few free points, uh, good enough hands, um, understanding of, of how he needs to win his points. And the only worry I have is that he turns out to be another Thomas Berdy, uh, the great Czech player who obviously had a great career, but became sort of the average hitting pro where if you play Thomas Bird, you don't have to adjust to anything except a little bit of pace. And I'm a little concerned that Sebastian hits every ball kind of the same over and over again. And he doesn't move quite as well as Novak, so he couldn't defend as well. There's so much upside to it. But as you've seen with Novak, he wasn't even close to playing his best at Wimbledon not even close and he wins easily. He's just hanging on and he's defending when he has to and be so with Sebastian Corda I think that yes he'll he'll be a threat for sure. Does he have that mind the, the the game to have the mindset that if I'm playing really horribly I am not losing to you. That's what I don't know yet, but what I've seen in terms of the positive part is absolutely brilliant. I think pretty much by far the most promising American at the moment, but I'm not sure that we can put him in the superstar uh, Grand Slam champion category quite yet because some of these other guys, you know, Yannick Sinner, Lorenzo Musetti, um, they're, they're really hungry and they're willing to sort of go into the trenches. And, and at some point, when you lose your serve seven times in the fifth set against Hachano, they both lost their serve 13 times, which is a record in any set at Wimbledon on the men's side to lose serve. That kind of tells me a little bit about you can't lose your serve seven times in a set. So I'm a little worried that there's a, it's, it's a little bit too bland, the tennis, a little bit too clean, a little bit too perfect, like what, what, exactly what you would want as a coach. But then you need that intangible, that, that X factor that you can't see. And I haven't seen that yet with him. But ball striking wise, he's one of the best for sure.
1: Johnny, with that being said, obviously what Matt's is alluding to with that that clean, perfect sort of demeanor, it's got some Roger Federer in it, which, which we've all come to love. If he's on one end of the spectrum and let's say Nick Kyrgios is on the other, who would you put your money on to potentially compete for slams? The, the, the bland, sort of understated, game face guy who doesn't seem to get rattled into, seems to be beyond his years from a, from a maturity standpoint, or with Curios who comes right out and basically says, yeah, if I win a major, great. If not, I'm out there to put on a show.
3: Well, there's no question I'd go with Corda, And I'm most entertained by Curios when I watch a tennis match. I love watching him, but there's no question I would, I would put my money on Korda. Because you said it. I mean, he, he's so young still but yet he plays with such maturity. I know that he you know, wasn't able to hold that serve in that fifth set against Hashinov, but he beat the Australian in the first round, De- De Minera, and he also beat Evans, two really good grass court players. I mean, he just has a lot of poise for a young guy, big game. I love the way he his court presence, the way he handles himself. He's got big shots, uh, believes he can win. And I'm um, with Mats. I mean, he, he's for sure the top American guy that we need to look to for big things. Um, love the guy's game. I think he's very, very well coached. I think, you know, his dad and, and the coaches around him done, have done a great job with him. They, they you know, they worked with him on uh, for the last few years on, on very, very strategically his game and, and what tournaments to play. And they, they've just done a great job with him. And I think the sky's the limit for that kid.
1: Let me ask you this, Matts. Because uh, again, with Corda, Johnny mentioned it. You know, a, a father who's a major winner, and we talked about it as well. Uh, a sister who's the number one golfer in the world. Another sister who's not far behind her. Uh, so, does the the entire family dynamic lend itself toward a level of belief that Corda should have in himself to say, well, I mean, my dad won a major. My sisters are winning major championships. They even talked about the fact that when he was a kid, he won a golf tournament that his now number one in the world sister was in that tournament. So, does all of this add up to a mindset that lends itself toward the belief to go towards levels that we have not seen Americans go towards since Andy Roddick?
2: Absolutely, yes. And in fact, uh, I interviewed him as well, and he said that. Uh, Peter was out with the oldest daughter, Jessica, caddying for her. Okay. So it's actually um, Sebastian's mom, who also played professionally, that kind of taught him how to hit the ball clean. And if you watch his strokes, it's, it's sort of more towards the women's side of hitting tennis balls, which is a little cleaner, maybe even a little harder, and it's, it's a little bit less junk on the ball. And that is my concern with him, is that there's a little, might not be enough junk on the ball, not enough spin at times. And are you going to have a great ball striking day when you play Wimbledon uh, and you're at 80% physically uh, ability to move around? You got to have that other side. So, I mean, I agree. It's possible that he could just turn into being an absolute king of ball striking. He's got a great mindset and it will influence him for sure that, that Nelly has won a major, being number one in the world, because now it's reachable. And um, uh, obviously, he said he grew up basically with Nelly and his mom because Peter was out with Jessica. So, yeah, it has to affect him. It has to feel like it's reachable. Yeah, he's the one to definitely to expect, but pressure is something I don't think we should put on his shoulders. I really don't. We should allow him to to sort of... uh, uh, Progress in his development as a player because he's not there yet for sure. He does not win more than three games to set against a Novak Djokovic in a big match. That's for sure. But he might, you know, improve a couple of percentages here and there and maybe, but uh, uh, he's going to be in the top of the game. That's for sure.
1: All right, before we go to break and we've got way more to get to because I want to give the women their due. Ashley Barty, as we talked about at the top of the show. Serena Williams and her situation and what that may mean or may not mean as we go forward into the summer. But before we do, Matt, I have to ask you, you made mention of where does Novak Djokovic get it? Where does he find that switch where he can find the fun and he can find the motivation? And I was thinking about before we went on air, what is the role of Goran Ivanisevic in the Djokovic camp? It's not the same. It doesn't seem as what maybe Lendl did for Andy Murray or what you tried to do when you were with Marat Safin, but maybe that's it. Maybe Goran is the guy who at times got a little bit distracted and a little bit almost silly on the tennis court, if you will. And maybe that prevented him from winning more than just the one Wimbledon title that he won. Is that the answer? It's Goran Ivanisevic that helps Novak keep a sense of humor and help keep his feet on the ground and help him keep, a healthy, happy mindset?
2: I think so, yeah. He actually talked about it, Goran, and he said that we're not winning the 20th Grand Slam. We're winning a slam. They're not interested in numbers, not even Goran. I mean, he said he's going to be the greatest of all time. But uh, it's very clear that, that I think that Goran is telling Novak something along the lines of, Listen, man, I showed up for all the majors, but I really didn't have it all the time. And you need to look at your opponent uh, uh, in the eye and say, I am not losing to you. And, And Novak, in one of the interviews I did with him, he said, well, I'm not really interested in anything except I need to serve as good as I did in practice yesterday. I need to be fresh on the returns. And then once the ball is in play, I basically hate my opponent. I don't, I don't want to lose to him. And so I think that his mindset is, is in two different ways. He's expecting himself to do a certain thing. And then when he's done that or hasn't, then he turns his attention to his opponent and he somehow thinks that he's just better than them. And And that's what was so hard for me to do. I, I, I couldn't, once I get to the top, I got to the top, I couldn't, couldn't sort of look the guy in the eye and say, hey, man, I'm not losing to you. I was more, I'm number one in the world, and I'm not even sure why you're trying so hard. And Novak has this ability, like Rafa Nadal, of course, has to, to turn a, a, a long-term goal into a very, very short-term goal, which is one point at a time. And I'm not the greatest in the world. I'm just better than you. And I think Goran has a lot to do with his own experience in, in a convincing Novak that it's not about numbers. It's about you not losing to this guy today.
1: More to get to on Tennis Channel Podcast Network, kickserveradio.com. When I come back with the boys, I want to talk about the ladies' game. I want to talk about the grass court surface and potentially the future of grass because We saw players on roller skates for the better part of a week at Wimbledon this year. And I want to see what these guys think that the governing bodies of tennis may choose to do about that, if anything, on a go-forward. So don't go away, because that's going to be a pretty interesting question I'm going to pose. Again, you're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. More to come, so stay with us.
0: Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis, and let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all including indoor tennis, lots of high quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience. One I assure you, you will never forget. After my clinic with Mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to matsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you When you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Third and final segment of the Wimbledon Recap Edition of Tennis Channel Podcast Networks, kickserveradio.com. We've been talking a lot about Novak Djokovic. Why would we not? He is now making his case as being the greatest of all time. His coach, Goran Ivanisevic suggests that if he wins in New York, it is case closed. We've discussed that. We'll leave that up to you all to determine for yourself. But there's a lot more great hardcore tennis to come this summer. But let's talk about the women's game because after the Australian Open mats, when Naomi Osaka won that tournament it was almost made to be an embarrassment that Ashley Barty would still retain the number one ranking in the world and that Osaka was clearly number one. And a lot has transpired since then. Osaka famously choosing to boycott the media at the French, playing one match, then pulling out, withdrawing from Wimbledon. First of all, what's the inside scoop among the boys and the ladies that you talk to in the media and in in the game itself? Where do they stand on Naomi Osaka at this point?
2: I think everybody has sort of made a complete 180 turn uh, because she has, I mean, she did it in the wrong order for sure, but she's, we have sort of uh, uh, realized and accepted that, okay, so she has certain mental health issues and she just put the statements out in the wrong order. She should have come out and said, I am feeling depressed and I have been for a while and uh, I would like to not talk to the press after every match and so on. And, but the way that it came out, it's kind of backfired on her a little bit. But I think there's a lot of support for her. Um, there's also a lot of support for, for her and also for Emma Raducano, the young British woman who, who had to pull out in her fourth round match against Alia Tomjanovic after a set and three love down. Um, so I think where everybody has softened up. Everybody's appreciating. I think that Naomi Osaka is actually coming out and talking about it. And everybody is a little concerned that um, the the managers of her social social media accounts didn't sort of stop her. And so, hold on, we have to do it the other way around. So, I mean, I even interviewed Billie Jean King uh, at uh, Wimbledon. And she said, well, it's good that she comes out and talks about it. Men should talk about it because it's affecting everybody. So, uh, um, she's going to the Olympics and if she has a good showing there, and she takes that all that pressure on, and uh, I think that it's all good. Um, and uh, in the end, Ash Barty proved that she might be still the number one in the world. And I actually think after Wimbledon, uh, she is the true number one in the world because she can handle adversity both emotionally and uh, and tactically. But yeah, I, Naomi Osaka thing is sort of died down, and and it's more now we're all sort of debating and discussing that. Uh, you know, maybe. We should talk about this a little bit more. So I think I give actually give credit to her that she at some point came out and sort of faced the truth and told us it just should have been done in another order.
1: Well, let me ask you this, and I'm going to stay with you, Matt, just for a second. Sorry, Johnny. But, you know, Billie Jean King says, well, the men need to come out and talk about it as well. And and quite frankly, John McEnroe did with regard to Raducanu, and he got absolutely blasted for his comments, uh, slammed by lots of different people as being insensitive. I read the comments and maybe I missed what he said because I saw what he said and I didn't find anything, and I'm probably getting myself in trouble here, but I I plead ignorance. If so, I didn't see anything that I felt that was really worth bashing John McEnroe about. I've seen far more controversial comments from Mac than the comments made after Rodicanu had to retire.
2: I think John McEnroe, is, uh, he's a, a fighter and he's a warrior on the court. And when he's commentating, because that's when it happened, he's just looking at the situation. And, uh, and to pull out from a match uh, in his world is completely unheard of. Like, he would never, ever do that. So the whole thing was because of the scheduling thing, for sure. She was hanging around in the locker room, playing after the men's match, which has never happened in Wimbledon that a women 's match is played after the men 's match and then having to go back on the, come back the next day to play the quarters uh, and, uh, and it was all TV it was all BBC that sort of decided that um, you know the British people should have a chance to see her after work coming home and, and you have to take that into consideration, but unfortunately, she is only eighteen, uh, and she even came out and said it afterwards in an interview with the BBC that you know that first week was so overwhelming for her that she just sort of ran out of ran out of steam and the pressure got to her so I mean I guess it's a lesson that you should they shouldn't have put her then maybe in two three years after she's been in the quarters a couple of times you can put that pressure on her but in the end I think um the scheduling committee made a horrible mistake uh and she couldn't deal with it and John McInery is a a tennis player when he commentates that's it he's not he's not trying to be politically correct he just sees what's going on and she couldn't finish the match and he, I agree with you. He wasn't harsh at all. He didn't look at Emma Redocano. He just looked at the tennis match ended. Why did it? And how can you not finish the match? So I don't think it was anything. Um, he wasn't trying to be uh, harmful at all or anything. He just saw the match and and that's his his feelings. And I actually kind of agree with him.
1: Johnny, we saw players just sliding around all over the place on that grass. They had gotten a lot of rain. The grass was slippery. It was wet. And as a result, we saw Serena Williams make uh, an early exit. She comes out to play her first match, and she's already taped up like it was the 11th week of the NFL season, and she had already rushed for 1,100 yards. I mean, she looked like she came out there already beat up. Now, that being said, she was playing pretty well, and then, of course, slips and, 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 and takes a you know kind of a, a weird step, and suddenly she's hurt. She's emotional. A lot of drama and a lot of drama uh, with her exit. Is it time for her to maybe consider stopping chasing number 24 and not letting this thing become a situation where what we remember her for in her latter years ends up tarnishing her legacy?
3: Possibly. Um, I'd like to understand a little deeper what's going on with her. Um, She doesn't seem to be the same player that she used to be obviously you know age comes into play she's a mom now she's got so much going on in her life can she commit to the game what is necessary to win slams when the field of play is so deep and so strong and so youthful um and it's it requires for, for her to be in the best shape possible i don't know that she is um that that would be something I think Mats would be closer to. I'd, I'd love his opinion, but you know Serena Williams has always had the, the the biggest serve in women's tennis, and you know some of these other gals now have as big, if not bigger. So I just I, I, it's it's a shame, but I I don't see her winning another Slam. Grass would have been her best chance. The, the players are just they're just too good right now, and an incredible career. If she stops soon. Wouldn't surprise me, um, and and you have to take your hat off to her whatever she does because
2: she really
3: transcended the women's tennis game.
1: Well, he wanted your opinion, Matts, on the situation, so let's hear it.
2: <laughs> well, maybe I throw it to you, Andy, uh, because the the question to me is not about winning the twenty fourth Slam; it's more about the legacy. And I am always I've always been one to believe that I love to see Serena out there. Fighting for her athletic life, so to speak, uh, and maybe not win a twenty fourth, but at least being physically at hundred percent. And obviously she wasn't. And then show me what you're going to do when you're when you're up against adversity. I don't care if you win another if tw- another slam, but but show me uh, that you still care, that you still believe, that you still want to win. And if you don't win, great. Because I think that if Roger Federer keeps playing. But he does it with passion. I think it's going to add to his legacy, whether he loses first round, second round, third round. Uh, but it's the way that it's done, I think. And uh, with Serena, I think she needs to come out and, and be, you know, be ready to play. No bandages on any, on any part of her body. And, uh, and then if she loses, she loses. But at the moment, we're not seeing Serena at 100%. Uh, and I'm not sure she should have even shown up at Wimbledon not being 100%
1: before I let you guys go a topic that I wanted to bring up because Matts we saw these players the first week of Wimbledon and it was literally like they were playing tennis on roller skates with banana peels on the court I mean it was that slippery it was that slick there were that many crazy falls uh, we saw saw your boy Emer take a a pretty serious slip there uh, in in his match and uh We were happy to see him get up and complete the match and play very well. Is there any thought with all of the technological advances that we've seen in the sport of tennis? We see roofs on center court at just about at every slam now. We see advances in racket technology and in string technology. Do you ever foresee them going to a synthetic grass to turning grass court tennis into an astroturf type, synthetic, better grip, better footing for the players, for their safety type of surface, and uh, eventually moving away from grass court tennis so that when we turn on Wimbledon on Sunday to watch the final, we're not watching the two best players in the world that day playing on dirt, literal dirt, and I don't mean clay. I'm talking dirt.
2: Yeah, so so they already talked about a little bit about maybe they should allow some play on center court before the tournament to make the Senate court and court one the same surface as the outside courts because I was walking around for the two weeks and there was no one really slipping. Mikael Umer slipped on court two, but it was getting late in the evening and the dewfall uh, was coming down and it was getting slippery, but, but really the, the people, the players were not slipping on the outside courts because they were, they were sort of like the center court was in the quarterfinals is what the outside courts were in the first round. So I think uh, Wimbledon is most probably reconsidering that. I think they most probably, to turn this around, will have to allow players in the first week maybe to have different pimples on their shoes so that they can keep playing um, the same way that they do. But I think in the end, it boils down to everyone is more aggressive. Everyone hits the ball harder and you have less time to react and you push off more with your outside foot. And even at Roland Garros on the clay, I feel like this year they were slipping more than sliding. And I think it's just the nature of the game that it's going to be more important to learn how to anticipate going in the right direction uh, and not uh, reacting as much. But um, maybe they have to add some artificial grass in between, but Wimbledon will never, ever take away the natural sort of smell and feel of grass cuz that's Wimbledon that's why it's all green but maybe they need to add some artificial grass in between so that uh, it's a, it gets a little grippier but yeah I, i'm not sure what what the what the answer is but certainly it looks way too dangerous for professional athletes to be out there in the first couple of rounds on Centre Court cuz i mean Novak could easily hurt himself and and uh, to the point where he could never play tennis again so i'm not sure not sure where where are they are going to go but uh, yeah it's a question that needs to be um, uh, addressed that's for sure.
1: Johnny as American sports fans we have watched the NFL um, kind of transition from the original AstroTurf which a lot of the players really complained about they felt that it was as if they were playing on cement and there were some horrific injuries and certainly I don't intend to equate NFL football to tennis with regard to the kinds of uh, injury potential that the two sports hold. But the fact of the matter is, is that the NFL has made decisions in the name of protecting the athletes. Now, in my opinion, moving to a synthetic grass would not only protect the athletes, but it would also be better eye appeal for the fan watching a beautiful green AstroTurf type court, something that really pops off the screen like it does when we're watching the Masters, which is obviously grass. But do you think as American sports fans, we're too sort of caught up with what we've seen the NFL do that we would consider maybe straying away from some of the traditions of, of, of grass court tennis. And do you think that that would just absolutely be sacrilege to even consider it? Sacrilege to even consider it. Where did this topic
3: <laughs> even come from? Andy, I mean, <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. Look, I didn't like the way these guys were, sliding around the grass. I, I, I just, it's so dangerous. I I don't know, maybe the rain, maybe they were coming back on the court too soon. I had never seen it this bad, this scary, but I mean, you cannot replace the tradition of, of real grass at Wimbledon or real, you know, thinking back to the Australian open on grass and these tournaments on grass. Absolutely not. Um, You got to stick with the, uh, with the original, That's my vote. I I wouldn't go near that Astro turf or any synthetic
1: grass. Well, one of the things we're not going to have to consider them, them changing is that hard court surface mats. And that's what we're getting ready to uh, embark on is the hard court season. Before we go talk to us about your Eurosport duties with the hard court season. What's the big story. And obviously it's all going to lead up to, to Novak you know trying to to win the calendar slam is there any other story in tennis that even compares to that right
2: now no absolutely not um and I do think that obviously Novak is the best hardcore player of all time but I do think that the the younger generation with Zverev Alexander Zverev, Stefanos Tsitsipas, Danil Medvedev, Yannick Sinner, Matteo Berrettini I think that Hardcore is most probably the surface that has the most specialists today. Uh, it's not clay, that's for sure. It's definitely not grass. But I think a lot of players are very comfortable playing on hardcore. So I think that, yes, Novak is the best player. But this, I think, might be harder to win, even though I think he will. Because I think that everyone can have a good ball striking day, including Sebastian Corda, and they can actually hurt Novak. Whereas on grass or clay, Novak has figured out a way to hit a slice backhand, to hit a drop shot here and there, and on heart, or hit a topspin forehand with a little more spin suddenly, or or sort of hit that skiddy backhand through the court. That that's that's not really. Uh, uh, that effective on a hard court. His game is effective on a hard court because he gets to absolutely everything and he never makes a mistake. And that's hard to beat. But I do think that the Zverevs and those big hitters are more of a threat to Novak on a hard court. And uh, I still think he wins it. I think he will turn out to be the greatest player of all time in numbers, for sure. Uh, And uh, I did a radio show with John McInerney on Tim Henman. Tim Henman said he thinks Novak will win 30 slams I wow. wasn't even laughing saying that. And if you think of it, 30 slams, that's another two and a half years of him winning everything. Yeah, why not? And he looks 24 when he plays.
1: He's Mats Vlander. He won seven of them. Johnny Levine was out there giving it his best shot for a few years himself. We've got the Olympics coming up. We've got the U.S. Open coming up. Lots to get to. And Tennis Channel Podcast Networks, kickserveradio.com featuring Mats Vlander, Johnny Levine, and myself, Andy Zoden, will be here to cover it. Mats, do us a favor. Get Sebastian Corda on the show. I want to talk to that kid. I want to hear what makes him tick. Boys, thanks so much. Another one in the books. Congrats to Novak. Congrats to Ashley Barty for absolutely validating herself as the bona fide number one player in the world. Well-deserved. Great Wimbledon this year. We'll be back real soon on Tennis Channel, Podcast Networks, KickServeRadio.com. Thanks, everybody, for catching us. We appreciate it.